Hello and welcome to Dropping at the Movies. I'm Mike. And I'm Jose. And today we've seen The Goldfinger. It's been a day of two uh, East Asian movies. This one's subtitled. The first one we saw, The Boy and the Heron, was dubbed. Uh-huh. This is live action. I didn't know anything about I, I, I picked this because it looked interesting. It had a cool looking like poster. I saw it had Tony Leung and Andy Lau, um, who are two big Hong Kong stars. Yes. Um, who you know at least from Infernal Affairs, mm-hmm. if not a few other things. Um, but I didn't know anything about this. And I assumed, I guess, kind of wrongly, because those guys are in their 60s now, that, that this is going to involve uh, action. Mm. It's not an action film at all. It's, I mean, it effectively plays out as, I would say, a combination of The Wolf of Wall Street and Goodfellas, you know, in big uh, parts. I was in, going to say a combination of The Wolf of Wall Street and The Big Short. Yeah, there's that going on as well. Yeah. Um, so it's apparently based on the downfall of a real company, Carrion Group, um, although they're not called that in this, so this is highly fictionalised. It's about a guy played by Tony Leung, who we see at the start on a boat to Hong Kong in search of his fortune, like Willy Wonka mm. in the recent film. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but instead of magic chocolate, he's got an engineering degree, I think. Um, and as it turns out, the engineering is not that useful to him. What is useful is finding his way into a property deal with someone who thinks he's rather more powerful and rich than he is, he makes money off it, and before you know it, he's built an enormous um, financial empire. It's mostly based on property, but it has fingers in all sorts of pies, and it is also based heavily on corruption. Mm. Um, And we see its um, uprise and downfall. Uh, Andy Lau is the cop. Um, Or rather, he's not... um, Is he a cop? He's he's the um, ICAC investigator mm. right so actually, <laughs> immediately i'm not quite sure because the film draws a distinction between the police and the icac that's right the international they're often at odds with each other the, at the beginning um, of the film anyway uh what's the what's it stand for sorry the independent commission against corruption yeah he is the icac so he has um he has arresting powers we see that because he ends up arresting uh tony leung a lot mm. um but yeah there is this distinction between between the police and the ICAC. The ICAC is a, a real institution that has apparently, you know, looking it up because I'm not all that familiar with the ins and outs of Hong Kong, has made Hong Kong a very non-corrupt place. Um, but that's not what we're seeing right here. What, what we're seeing right here is a business that is fundamentally corrupt and yes. people who are fundamentally corrupt. I would say this film is not as good as I think it is. It, I loved, I had a really good time. Did you? But I do think it's not as good as the, the time I had. <laughs> ah, that's well, that's an interesting way of putting it. I must say, throughout the whole first bit, I thought they're too old. Mm. Yeah, I would have liked to have seen younger people in these roles. So on the one hand, they're legends. You know, you've seen them pretty much all your life in this type of cinema and in, in the mood for love and, you know, and so on. But really... I think they're too old, yeah, mm. to play these roles. So the pleasure of seeing the legendary actors was a bit kind of marred by, you know. Mm. The, Does it not have a kind of, I suppose another point of reference in American cinema would be Heat, you know, seeing the two kind of clash against each other. Um, and obviously they are of advancing years to some degree in Heat, although not as old as their 60s as they are here. Um, yeah, would that, be, I mean, would that be kind of attraction? I mean, the attraction is that they are 
legendary actors. So yes, you know, they would have a similar status, I suppose, as, as, as Robert De Niro and Al Pacino. But also, unlike Robert De Niro and Al Pacino, they have this legendary co-starring partnership mm. yeah, in the Infernal Affairs films. So, you know, the pleasure is in seeing them again. But the Infernal Affairs films are 30 years ago, right? 20 years, yeah. I thought they were after that, actually. I thought they were like early 90s. No, 2000s, early 2000s. Really? Infernal Affairs 1, 2002, Infernal Affairs 2 and 3, uh, the following year. All right, okay. Well, there you go. 20, yeah, I thought it was longer than that, actually. Mm. Because, you know, they are stars since the mid-80s. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, I mean, it's it's kind of uh, uh, quite a trajectory. And I just thought they were too old, really. Mm. Uh, they fit the very end of the film. Because it spans 10 to 15 years. Yeah, so, you know, by the end of the film, they are the age that the actors actually are at the moment. You know, so um, I didn't like that. On the other hand... I think I was, and I hated the look of it, by the way. Yeah, so on the one hand, I thought the design seemed great, Mm. you know, and you could really tell that there was someone behind the camera who knew about the camera and cinematic space, but it all looked brown and dingy. So I I leant over to you early on and went, this film looks awesome. Um, This was around the time that we were seeing the riots early on, and there's that scene... Um, in the, uh, uh, I think it's police station, and the one guy's got a gun at the other guy, and then another guy comes in with a gun, and then everyone else starts pointing guns. That was guns. great, yeah. And I, think, I, I was thinking these shots, particularly the, the close-ups of, you know, one character on the right hand of the frame, second character on the left in the background, there's a gun between them. These look like Antoine Fuqua shots, and I mm. always associate his kind of aesthetic with, like, what cinema should really look like. It mm. should be big and imposing and scary. And that definitely had that. But And I think that the film goes on to have... Um, moments of set design and moments of lighting that really are showing off and looking fantastic. But I also agree with you that there's an, an awful lot that is dingy, brown, grey, not as expressive or exciting. I mean, there's a whole section of the film that should be exciting, which is where they're making all the money and spending mm. it all and doing all these corrupt deals and whatever. Um, that you know, And it is exciting, but it's not being expressed uh, as much as it could be through the look, I don't mm. think. That's Although it does have, it, it did have a, a, that shot where they go through that mirrored corridor that goes around a few bends, where it's, it's 360s around um, the, I think it's the Tony Young, Young character early on. And that's like such a show-off shot because it's all about going, everything here is mirrored and you're not seeing the cameras. Mm. Everything's been painted out so meticulously, you know, it's just showing off. I yes. did like that. Yeah, no, that is true. On the other hand... I thought this is a film that should have given you the same rush as The Wolf of Wall Street and the sexiness, the sleaziness. Yeah. And it just doesn't. But I thought even the scene where they go in with the stockbrokers and there are all these women behind cages available to all. Mm. I mean, I thought, again, it felt... Well, that kind should of... be the ultimate expression of like the, the depth of depravity of what this money can bring and, the, and what it does to the people or what, or what it allows the people to express of themselves. Oh, yes. That they can just house women in cages. Like, you, theoretically, you're going to see the antique room and we've got one antique and eight caged women. Yes. You know, and one of them, it's pointed out, is you know turned down this one guy previously. Before, and she's a and she, film star. But she's now been paid to take him off and fuck him. Yeah. So like it should be the ultimate, but it's, it doesn't sell it. It doesn't sell no. that feeling. Um, so so what I really liked, I suppose, was the investigative dimension. Mm. Yeah, that kind of that I thought would be confusing or uninteresting. Right, because I know very little about Hong Kong and, you know, Hong Kong history. Mm. But actually, the film lays it out very clearly. 
right? Like, you know, the, the Ponzi scheme, how they make their money, what the roles of the various people are. So every time there's a layer of uncovering, there's also a layer of explaining, yeah, what's mm -hmm. been happening, right? And how these people have been making money out of air, really, right? So I thought that was very interesting. That was very well done, actually. I, I slightly disagree on this because no. I think... For one thing, it's it's not clear that it was a Ponzi scheme. I think you know what we see is a number of different scams, like you know selling that building and then leaving the guy holding the bag, having promised him someone else would buy it for more, that sort of thing. There are there are various scams that we see occasionally, but they're all built on this like, Ponzi element that by virtue of selling more stock and selling stock at a higher place and then manipulating the stock, you can get something out of it and leave someone else going. Yeah, so there's always like someone so. left holding the bag. There's always a greater fool and all that kind of thing. Um, but it's not, you know, it's not the whole business is based on one scam. It's it's a business that just, it's, it's opportunistic, I find. That's the way I think it plays out. And I was disappointed that you heard so much, you know, kind of in, in like kind of throwaway lines every now and again about who are my backers, the Tony mm -hmm. Young character, who are his backers, and he never says anything. And I thought the revelation would ultimately be there are no backers, and this was pure Ponzi. Like, it was absolutely out of thin air. I had nothing ever mm -hmm. and was convincing people to buy in. But then there's this thing much later on about, you know, my backers are the most powerful of the most powerful. I can't even sniff their shadows. You know, these are people that run countries. And I'm like, okay, so here we go into the real revelation and then it forgets about it immediately, and we don't hear anything well, more. I, I wanted, I wanted I, to know I, what to, you know what it no, all came down to. I, I don't think anything more could be said, and I think that was enough. Mm. Though on the other hand, I thought it could also have been conveyed more powerfully because the stark message there is that the world is entirely corrupt, mm. you know, internationally. That it's not just Hong Kong; this is happening all over, kind of, you know, in the West and the East. That kind of, you know, in order to maintain that level of corruption, people become disposable, the police and the courts are for sale and have been sold, et cetera, et cetera. Right. Yeah, no, I get that. Um, I do think it was it was suggesting more than, you know, it just, it comes in at this moment, actually these people are real and they are that big, and then it, it, it went nowhere with it. I was, I thought it was kind of pulling its punch there or something. I also felt that it got a little bogged down in financial detail. Um, we get kind of, it's not going into like huge explanations like like it does in the big short, for instance. It's not explaining this is how this works and this works and this works. But you get these conversations, you get the scenes in the stock market where they're talking in re relatively specific terms about I bought this for this much and I sold it for that much and here's this and here's that and and money becomes it it becomes quite dense with with numbers effectively. And I thought that it reminded me of I, I'm sure there's a bit in the Wolf of Wall Street where. DiCaprio's character you know, addresses the the audience directly and says, he, he starts to explain something about the financial dealings and then goes, fuck it, you don't want to hear about that. It's pointless. We're just making shitloads of money. And I kind of thought this one needed a little of that attitude. All they were doing was making shitloads of money. And the details are, I think, a little bit of a distraction. Mm, I don't know. I, I, I enjoyed that. I felt I needed it. I was certainly never bored by the film. I also never felt really lost mm -hmm. yeah, in it. So I think kind of whatever it was doing narratively worked for me, mm -hmm. right? Um, where I suppose it wasn't doing enough was, and in spite of what you're saying, mm -hmm. kind of visually, yeah, and, and tonally, like, you know, what is driving these people, you know, desire, yeah. for, I don't know, sex, wealth, 
This yeah, is where I think the film is at its most simple because you've got this clash of these two characters ultimately, even though I think, yeah, and in star terms, they are kind of equal yes. parts, but in character terms, they're really not. I think the cop, or rather the ICAC investigator, is effectively a secondary character. We really have one central protagonist, and that's Tony Leung's character. Though paradoxically, the cop is the one who's given an interior life and a family life. Yeah. You actually know very little about you Tony know Lung. yeah about Tony Lung except you know that he's charismatic and a scammer <laughs> but you you don't know anything else mm -hmm. you really you have no sense of where he's coming from why he's doing this why this is absolutely you know, it. like you, you get uh, effectively it just comes down to i guess he's just the the apogee of all greed and that's what he represents and what he is about and the uh, Andy Lau character is all about just justice and process and getting it right. And again, we're like, what really, you know, do, why does he hate these? Does he hate these people? Does he hate the system that allows it? We don't hear anything of like that. We get, we get his family life and how doing this job disrupts his family life and is a danger to it. But we don't get, you know, why is it worth that disruption, that mm. danger? It's a film that to me feels also very anti-British. And I wondered if you had any views on it. Well, um, I, would, I would say no, I don't have any views on it. But essentially because, you know, my my understanding of the history of Hong Kong and the British kind of ownership of it um, is very limited. I remember when, when Hong Kong was given back to the Chinese in 1997, which means I would have been eight years old. Which is pretty much when the film ends. I did kind of think, oh, we must see some British people in this at some point, right? It's because it's all Chinese people. And then, you know, some British people do show up. And the first scene that we see any of them in is that one at the party where they're talking about buying that building and the yeah. and the guy on stage gives a fuck you to, to the Chinese. Mm. And then everyone, including all the Chinese characters, with the exception of Tony Leung, um, puts their hand on their chest and sings Rule Britannia. And I thought, how realistic is it? It seemed like such a parent. I've never seen that. But maybe in, you know, 1970s... Um, oh, that kind of would make sense to me yeah. in a way. Uh, no, no. The reason why I think it's anti-British is the first British person you see, it's so awfully acted. The actor is so badly chosen. The accent is so terrible, <laughs> right? And, of course, they're a sleazy person. And I think every single British person that you see is a corrupt banker who's willing to sell, yeah, kind yeah. of themselves for whatever kind of profit they can get. Um, and, I mean, you Maybe know. Maybe it's the privilege that, you know, of, of, of being British and I don't know about any of these people, I'm the centre of empire, that, like, it doesn't bother me how I'm portrayed. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe that's it. Well, I just thought that it's interesting because... You know, if the film really ends at the moment that China takes over, mm. yeah, which it's been, what, the last 20, 25 years. years or so, you know, and that's when the film ends, um, then, you know, the assumption is that corruption kind of ends at that point, mm. right? And, you know, that uh, the villains really kind of were... Uh, the British who kind of... But do you of... think it's the film's implication... What well, do you think that is the film's implication? I mean, as, as you say, I, I think I'm, you're right to say that the British who we do see are as corrupt as anyone else and involved in these deals. But um, but also, the, I'm just the Chinese that we see are also, on their own terms, just acting in corrupt ways and, you know... Listen, I think if we saw a British film mm -hmm. in which all the Chinese people depicted were 
you know, corrupt idiots, you know, on the take, there would be an issue. And I just think, mm. you know, because also in this film, you see, like, you know, the Russians are no better, but you see them very little, right? So this is the major, the, the only major uh, ethnic group that is depicted <laughs> is Brits, and they're all really sleazy, corrupt, opportunistic. Mm. I mean, I think the film has a view on it. Yeah. You know? No. Um, now, well, whether it's warranted with, or, or not warranted. I just agree with that view. <laughs> Well, you could agree with that view, but I just think it's 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 there, yeah, and it's interesting that it's there. I also thought, you know, so interesting that the film begins with all of these demonstrations against police corruption, and what we've seen in Hong Kong recently is those demonstrations are no longer allowed. Mm-hmm. And well, and ultimately the end of this, in what I find you know, a very kind of unconvincing coda. Uh, Tony Dung's character is convinced to give himself up and does, and in a very kind of brief final scene, he pleads guilty, he gets put away. And for three the, years. And, <laughs> yeah, for three years. Uh, and after, the cop, you know, 55 murders have taken place as a yeah, result of his and actions. And a 10-year investigation. Yeah. And the cop and his wife get to go off and resume their happy life together, having put away the criminal. And it's like, and, and actually, again, you go back to The Wolf of Wall Street, and the thing was, at the end of that, he, he ended up being put away during time. But the, the twist was that time was incredibly easy. He's still fucking super rich mm. and the system is still built for him. Mm. But that's not what this is saying. This is saying, no, the, the, they won in the end. Justice was served. And it really felt like, I mean, you know, maybe it's the truth of the story to some degree that it's based upon, the, the real story. But it did feel like all of those old kind of Hayes Code endings where it's like they have to be put away in the end and you have, yeah. your morality has to ensue. And, yes. You know. Um it's interesting because, you know, I didn't know anything about it at all. I mean, I just went because it's rare that a Chinese film, you know, gets mm-hmm. distributed really. And I, so I welcomed the opportunity. I just want to see it blind. I was very happy to see the stars, right? Because, well, because I love them uh, and I've been seeing their work for like half my life. And it's just interesting to see the team up at this particular age and I thought they were both very good and very charismatic and they were a pleasure to see mm. though I do think they were too old yeah do you think the structure worked of um, setting the film for the most part in those interrogation scenes with everyone having been arrested and then a lot of the story being told in flashback yes I did yeah, yeah. Uh, I think it's part I think it works narratively uh, you're not bored the perspective keeps shifting, mm-hmm. right? So you do go from character to character to character, uh, and then the film has its own perspective, mm. you know, on what took place. Uh, and I think the tensions between all of those things, I mean, you know, I kind of, I wasn't bored once. You know, I was a little bit decrying the look of the film. Mm-hmm. And, and, and again, I hate, I hesitate to criticize it very much because, you know, now when I go to Cineworld, I just think, is it a fucking projection system? Because really, there is such a difference in luminosity between the IMAX screen and the non-IMAX mm-hmm. screen. And this was not on an IMAX. And it was not on IMAX. And, you know, kind of even I was seeing, you know, I saw Saltburn there. And then I saw Saltburn on Prime. And the colors are more vivid on my television than, you know. Mm. Um, so it's just this, the same thing. You know, could it be that the film had this very vibrant, you know, uh, brown palette? And <laughs> all you're seeing now in this lousy projection system is just a dingy brown palette Mm -hmm. so i'm not sure but i did feel that the film lacked kind of visual vibrancy yeah 
Um, I know what you mean. So, so, but I, but I, like you say, I have all these problems with it and still I enjoyed it very much, you know. I had a terrific time throughout. I was, you know, I think there maybe were one or two points when it started to like, and in fact, I did, it felt very long, although it is just two hours. Um, but, I mean, I was starting to feel like, haven't we had two hours at this point? There were points where it started to feel very long and, and I, I don't know what it is. Maybe, maybe on a, you know, well, always on a second viewing, it'll feel shorter because films always do. But, there was a, there was definitely an area of the film which is around the time that they're making continual scam deals and making money hand over fist and so on, where I couldn't work out what the narrative drive was at this point. They just kept doing sort of the same thing over and over again a few times, mm. and I thought, when is the when is the twist going to come? When is the next bit? You know, um, and I think that was a little bit of a lag. Maybe there was an element or two of the film's narrative that could have been tighter in that respect. But um, for the most part, I was really enjoying it. I liked, you know, it, it did have flair, it did have flourishes. It had that thing with all the money being thrown all over the mm-hmm. table. And, you know, the thing with the women in the cages that could have been shown off better, but still is expressive of mm-hmm. it was, you know, a certain kind of um, you know, masculine, what's, I don't know what the word is, toxicity or what mm-hmm. have you, that this brings out. I mean, it's a very masculine film. There's one woman involved in this mm-hmm. scam. Um, so I, I don't know, like, I, I had a really good time. And I, I do think it looks good on a big screen, you know, I enjoyed seeing it there. I think you know it, some of those compositions. I really enjoyed it. Character, yes, character on the on one side of the screen, character on the other, talking to each other, like really mm. thought through composition. You know, yeah. There that was one a... shot where it had like, you know, you, you saw people at two corners, and then I think it was Andy Lau kind of walking right through. You know, and you just think, oh my god, this is terrific. You know, someone who really knows how to use space. Yeah. So of, it's like really uh, thought through composition and 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 shot selection that has an eye on visual impact. Mm. Um, even if you know we do have our reservations about how much that visual impact is brought out mm. through other things, through through color and and, and brightness, essentially. Mm. Um, but I, I had a really good time, and and like I said, I think it is ultimately too simple. It has this pat ending that I don't really buy. Um, that it certainly is played too easily. Mm. You know, it's not built up to mm. um, enough. I must say, if people are going because they want a rematch of Internal Affairs, they'll be disappointed, I think. Mm. You know, because the Internal Affairs films just had a tension, you know, kind of that this, this film doesn't have. Mm. You know, I think the plot is ingenious and, you know, the characterization is so pleasurable to watch. You know, but that kind, of, the combination of action sequences and, you know, narrative tension, suspense... Right, where you know in the internal affairs films that you're sometimes just gasping at kind of what's yeah, what mm. could happen. This is not no. in this film. No. Right. So in that sense, you know, if people are going for a, a something similar to that, they'll be disappointed. Yeah. Yeah. But if you're not, and as long as you also don't expect kung fu foolishly, mm. <laughs> then you'll probably have a pretty good time. I yes. did. Yes, I did as well. All right, well, on that note, uh, we recommend it. We had fun. Mm-hmm. Uh, we are eavesdropping at the movies, and we are on. Apple Podcasts, Audible, Google Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, and YouTube. On social media, we're on Facebook and Twitter, at eavesdropmovies, and Blue Sky, eavesdropping.bsky.social. And the website is eavesdroppingatthemovies.com. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. <laughs> <laughs>